Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Jeremy Kanondike, recently left his post as the top U.S. global humanitarian relief official. Jeremy led the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance at USAID during much of Obama's second term, and we discussed how the U.S. responded to some key disasters, including the Ebola outbreak, and we have a long conversation about that towards the end of the episode. Jeremy's been working in this field since the Balkans crisis of the 1990s, and I caught up with him just as he returned from a trip to northern Nigeria, which is currently beset by a major humanitarian crisis. We kick off discussing what he saw there. As you know, we are in the midst of a fundraising drive, and I would so love your support. Please click on the support the show link on globaldispatchespodcast.com or follow the link from the description field of this episode if you're listening in iTunes or Stitcher. The show needs your support. I need your support. There is no other podcast out there like Global Dispatches, and if you listen every week, twice a week every week, you know that. If you become a premium subscriber, you will be entitled to some rewards and also have access to bonus episodes that explore key themes, ideas, institutions, and debates of foreign policy and world affairs in a way that gives you historic context to understand contemporary news. But wait, there's more! Premium subscribers will also get access to my Don's Digest Global News Clip service, which is a daily news roundup of key global events around the world. And it's a, a paid service. And actually, as it happens, one of my key subscribers is the U.S. Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance. So you could wake up in the morning to the same news clip service as insiders in, in Washington, D.C., those are just two of the rewards. The others can be found by clicking on the support the show link. But deeper still, I think the satisfaction of knowing that you are supporting a project that you love and learn from each week should be reason enough to support the show. Anyway, thank you so, so much. I really cannot do this without your support. I need a certain percentage of you to become premium subscribers in order for this thing to become the sustainable enterprise I know and, and hope and, and trust it can be. Like I said earlier, there is no podcast out there like this that covers these issues in the way that I cover them, and I need your support to keep this going. So thank you. Now here is Jeremy Kanondike. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. It, it, is, it has been for a number of years one of the most overlooked and I think underserved humanitarian crises in the world, certainly in terms of its scale. So if you look at the scale of the displacement, there's nearly 2 million people displaced. Um, the, the number of food insecure, I think, is, is roughly 5 million so you know these are those are numbers that just in terms of raw scale put this on par with uh, about any about any other first tier humanitarian crisis in the world. And is it principally uh, a result from the Boko Haram insurgency, which for the most part, I, I, my understanding at least, has been um, diminished significantly? It has it has diminished significantly in the sense that the Nigerian government and some of the regional military forces, with a fair amount of U.S. and other international support, have made a lot of progress in rolling back Boko Haram's hold on the, the territory there in the northeast. And so it's a it's a uh, the, the humanitarian crisis is resulting from a combination of both Boko Haram and their tactics and just how terrible they are. 
and the conflict that has accompanied the Nigerian military's attempt to retake territory and some of the tactics that the, the Nigerian military has used. And so the population there are kind of caught in a vise. On the one hand, you have the Nigerian military, which um, uh, you know I think there have been a lot of improvements in their in their performance, but it's it's difficult. You know, this is a difficult sort of fight, and some of the tactics they've you know there's reporting anyway suggesting that some of the tactics they've used have have in- included trying to cut off uh, uh, commerce and uh, and and access to some of the Boko Haram held territories in order to. Uh, to weaken Boko Haram, but then in the process also makes life a lot harder on the population in those areas. Um, that in and of itself might be somewhat manageable if people were able to and allowed to flee those areas, but Boko Haram has also reportedly prevented them from doing that. And so uh, the population in some of these territories are uh, have been prevented from fleeing on the one hand, and um, uh, you know, uh, 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 not been able to get what they need uh, across the front lines of the conflict. On the other hand, and so it's it's created a really dire situation. Well, so how much territory does Boko Haram still hold in the region? Far far less than they did. So within northern Nigeria, at one point they held quite large swaths of several states in the the northeast corner of the country, and their territory has diminished dramatically over the last year year and a half. To the point where now, the areas that they that they uh, thoroughly control are really much more marginal areas up along the borders, where um, it's it's harder to it's harder to um, uh, fully uh, close them down because they can cross the borders, come back over, and 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 use that for some strategic depth. Um, so in those areas, they still hold uh, a lot of you know hold hold the territory pretty thoroughly. Um, and then further in there, there are more areas where it's a little more contested, contested and mixed. And so the Nigerian government will hold the towns and Boko Haram will still have a lot of influence and, and, and presence in the countrysides and along the route, the road routes. Um, from what, from what I was briefed during my time there, based on some of the reporting from UN agencies, and NGOs, there don't seem to be a lot of people left in the areas that Boko Haram still holds. Uh, so as the government has retaken territory, a lot of people have been able to either get assistance in the areas where that are now government held um, uh, or, or leave those areas for some of the larger cities. Um, the the Maiduguri, which is the regional, the state capital, has a baseline population of about a million, and there are about a million IDPs there. So it's almost doubled in size with the uh, with the the IDP population. And and is the government just unable to keep up with the need? I mean, unlike other urgent food security crises like in South Sudan or in Yemen, I mean Nigeria is not like a failed state, right? So so is the not government just unable to though deliver the the aid that's needed? I, the government is doing quite a lot, and, and actually the, there's a lot to commend in terms of what the, the government of Nigeria is doing. They're, they're making quite a serious effort on but, this, but it's, it, but it's also something that would challenge any government. I, I mean, I think it's, it's important. You know, When you have 5 million people that are food insecure and 2 million people that are displaced, that would be a challenge for any, any country to manage. And I mean, if you, if you had uh, 2 million people displaced in you know, a, a U.S. state, that would be challenging. So I, I think the Nigerian government is, is, is making, at this point, a sincere effort, and their effort really picked up back in the fall. And so prior to that, there had been, uh, I think the, the, the senior leadership in the government in Abuja had not really grasped quite how dire the situation was up in the north. And when the UN agencies declared internal L3 activations, the government was quite... And and sorry, um, let me just pause you there and say that L3 activations means level three emergency, which is like the highest level of emergency in the UN system. It's like the the five alarm fire sort of thing. It's a signal. Well, so that's a common misconception, actually. Oh, do do Um, tell. uh, What the L3 activation is intended to do and to be is a surge mechanism. To get so like, the not, best, best resources into the into the the region, yeah, the it A-team, doesn't, as it were. Exactly, it doesn't in, it doesn't necessarily reflect 
the severity of the crisis relative to other crises. It reflects the UN's capacity, you know, the, the UN's present capacity and the humanitarian system's present capacity relative to the level of need. Okay. And so, for example, um, uh, South Sudan is no longer an L3 crisis, even though by any objective measure, it is still one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. But it was scaled back from L3 because the humanitarian capacity had surged, been stabilized, and was now at a much higher mm-hmm. baseline than it had been prior to the L3. Fair enough. Okay. That's helpful. Um, but that's an important distinction, I think, because and, – and it sounds kind of pedantic, but, but it's an important distinction because that perception of what an L3 is really colors how countries view an L3 declaration and makes, often makes them quite hostile to it. And so we saw in the case of Nigeria, we saw as well in the case of Haiti with the earthquake last year, and we've seen in other places, governments being very hostile to the idea of a system-wide L3 activation, because they see that as somehow suggesting that their country is a failed state, and they see it reflecting on them and the government's capacity, rather than reflecting that the UN and the NGOs do not have the teams in place that they need, which is the intent of that, of that activation. Well, I, I shall forever uh, refer to it that way. I've, I've, I'd always refer to it the, the, the former way, but thank you. That, yeah. That's a helpful corrective. So, I mean, is the international community sort of doing enough, like are donors doing what needs to be done to prevent this crisis from escalating even further? So there has been a really, uh, a really dramatic scale up since last fall. So I went out there in August along with the uh, acting food for peace director, Matt Nims back when I was still the opta director. And I was pretty stunned at that time at what I saw, which was that the international community and you know, the UN and the NGOs were well short, <clears throat> excuse me, were well short of the level of activation and engagement that they needed that was required based on just the the you know the basic needs of the population so uh, uh, you know displacement of 2 million severe food insecurity of 5 that that's you know those are kind of order of magnitude comparable with south sudan uh south sudan had a dramatically bigger humanitarian presence and you know in fairness dramatically bigger humanitarian budgets than nigeria had at that time and um you know obviously very big differences in government capacity between those two countries as well, and, and government will. Um, the government of Nigeria, uh, unlike South Sudan, is generally helping and facilitating the humanitarian effort as opposed to act- actively obstructing it, like we're seeing in Juba. Um, but nonetheless, you know, the, the the level of response was nowhere close to where it needed to be. And, and I said at the time that it was the biggest disconnect. I had seen between level of need and level of response since the early days of the Ebola outbreak. I mean, it it was just way off kilter. So I and a number of others, uh, a number of the other donors subsequently pushed the UN and the NGOs quite hard to scale up. Uh, And there were then around that time and following that trip, uh, virtually all of the UN agencies declared internal L3s, which they do unilaterally. It's not a system-wide activation. Um, but that signals that within their own respective organizations that they're surging their teams, they're tapping into their reserve resources and things like that. So in the six months or the eight months, I guess, since I was out there last, there's been a dramatic change in the level of, of international engagement and, I think just as critically, a dramatic change in the level of government of Nigeria engagement. So the, the uh, L3 activations by the UN agencies kind of caught the Nigerian government off guard. And, and they were a bit upset initially because they saw that as somehow suggesting the government wasn't getting the job done. Um, but the government then really stepped up its efforts. So it set up an interministerial task force. It, um, USAID worked with the government to create an emergency coordination center in the capital. Um, the government appointed a, uh, a coordinator to work with the – to kind of serve as a, um, a – a, connective tissue between the national response and the international response. They put dramatically more resources into it. So both the national, so those L3 activations, although they annoyed the government, um, also prompted the government to step up its, its engagement too, and to take its leadership uh, and its responsibilities very, very seriously. And 
Um, so on both both the national and the international side, there's been a dramatic scale up uh, relative to where things stood in August. So it seems the trajectory, at least as of now, is is more positive. It it is. It's not. It's still not where it needs to be. The resources are still short of where they where they ought to be given the scale of the crisis. Although they're much higher than they were. Um, one one statistic I heard while I was out there was that in my degree in the regional capital, that which is now the hub of the international aid operation and the national aid operation, there had been something like the, the, the international humanitarian agencies had something like 30 international staff, and now there are four or 500. Okay. So it, it has it has scaled up dramatically. Um, so I would uh, love to pivot and learn a little bit more about you. you. I think you probably came on my radar in your Mercy Corps days, but I know that you have been at this for a, a long time, and I'd love to learn a little bit more about sure. Um, you, where you're from, how you got into this line of work. So where are you from? Uh, I am from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Oh, okay. I, I didn't detect that Michigan accent in your voice. That's because there is no Michigan accent. It's a perfectly neutral American accent. Oh, perfect. No, no. See, I'm from Connecticut. We literally have no accent. <laughs> um, and of Canadian like parents. So I'm, I'm like, uh, I was born for this. Um, so, so where, uh, so growing up in, in Grand Rapids, um, like what did your what did your folks do? What did your parents do? Uh, my mother was a college professor of foreign language, and uh, my father was a um, he worked in statistics for a large furniture corporation, doing market research and so on. So, how did you become sort of globally aware? Like, what were there um, mm-hmm. sort of crises of your youth? I'm, I'm trying to peg your age, but I have to mm-hmm. imagine that maybe the Ethiopia uh, famine was something that might have been formative uh, in your earlier years. No, that I was, I would have been in, I guess I would have been in grade school at that time. So it wasn't that much on my radar screen apart from the, we are the world song. Yeah. Um, I think what, what really started bringing these onto my screen was more the crises of the Balkans in the nineties. So my mother's family had to immigrate to Canada from the Netherlands because the, the economic situation in the Netherlands after the second world war was just so, uh, so dire that the, uh, you know, they, they had a seven. They had seven kids. They couldn't make a go of it, uh, and so they they moved to Canada to to start a new life and and did so successfully. Um, and so that was always a big part of uh, of you know my mother's personal narrative and and my personal narrative. Uh, this idea of uh, <clears throat> of hardship driving um, you know driving people to move, and you know they they were not driven out by violence or, or anything like that. So it is a different situation, but I think that was, that was some of my earliest awareness that, um, uh, or uh, quite sure how to put it. Um, you know, that was, that was weaved into my understanding of how the world worked from a very young age. And, um, and I think was one of the things that gave me a bit of a mental construct, um, that inclined me towards towards this work. Where in uh, uh, Canada did they head to, and how did they pick uh, Canada? Uh, I'm not sure how they picked Canada. It might have just been that that's where they were able to to get their visas. I'm I'm not really I, I don't know that part of the story. But they moved to Ontario, southern Ontario. Uh, and then how did and your mom moved uh, across the lake to 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 Michigan? Yeah, so she went to college in Michigan, met my dad, and then that was that. So. Um, the, the, this background, obviously, as you mentioned, it sort of informed how you understood, if not refugee flows, migration patterns, and and what yep. you're you're in high school, you're in college, watching the the conflict in the Balkans erupt. Yeah, yeah, and so I I remember being in 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 high school for most of the the war in Bosnia, um, and then and then when I and it was ending around the time I was going into into undergrad. And I was a pretty politically engaged um, kid. I was uh, very active in um, high school politics and uh, competitive public speaking teams, and that you know I was that kind of brand of nerd in high school. Um, uh, I don't know if I ever stopped being that brand of nerd, but I, I know that brand well. <laughs> there were a lot, of, a lot of them end up in Washington. Um, so, uh, but I was never, I wasn't especially attuned to international crises. And I just remember I would read the occasional newspaper article on the, the war in Bosnia and just found it deeply confusing. And, 
Um, and, and so couldn't quite wrap my head around it. And I got into college and what was really a turning point for me in terms of seeing my future lying in the international realm rather than the domestic realm was a first a course I took on the history of the, the modern Near East. And um, I did a lot of research on the Palestinian refugee crisis that began to get me interested in, in refugee issues. And then I also did a, spent a summer doing archaeology in Jordan in a place that, ironically now, is probably uh, overrun by Syrian refugees. It was a small town called Um al-Jamal, about four kilometers south of the Syrian border, uh, near the towns of Mafraq and Irbid, which are kind of the, uh, the uh, you know, big hubs for the, the, refugee, um, the refugee operation in northern Jordan. Um, and I loved that experience from a cultural point of view. I loved... Uh, working and, and in and seeing and, and, and living amongst a, a very, very different uh, cultural, uh, very different culture, um, kind of beginning to understand at a more kind of tangible and experiential level that there are very different ways that people live around the world and, and um, very different ways they approach problems and um, issues and politics and all of that. I didn't like archaeology at all. Um, it, it was, uh, very fun to study and very, uh, for me at least quite dull to actually do. So great cultural experience and also uh, allowed me to pretty definitively conclude I didn't want to be an archeologist. So coming out of that, I wanted to do something international. I was very interested in refugee issues. I wasn't quite sure where to go with that. And it was right as I was graduating from college, it was right as the cost of our refugee crisis was, was peaking. Mm-hmm. So like 1998, so I, 1999, 2000. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so as I was driving, you know, as I, as I would drive to my classes every day, listening to NPR, there would be these reports from Macedonia and Albania of these just refugee flows of biblical proportions into those countries. And I felt like that's what I, that's where I want to be right now. That's where I want to go. And I got very lucky, and I happened to know someone who had previously been an administrator at, at my college, Calvin College, now famous for Betsy DeVos, um, but not necessarily a very Betsy DeVos kind of place, <laughs> although their names are all over the campus. Um, but uh, anyway. Um, you, you could be the I, DeVos chair in humanitarian studies, Jeremy. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so a former administrator had gone to work for a, a small in- West Michigan-based NGO called International Aid, and I just cold-called her because I'd, I'd worked with her a bit when she was still at the at the college. I cold-called her and asked if they had anything that I might be able to do, figuring I would get sort of an admin assistant job or something like that if I was lucky, just as a way to get a foot in the door. And, um, uh, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Uh, they needed someone to go to Albania like yesterday because they had had someone lined up and they'd fallen through. Hmm. And so I was there, I was a warm body. I was ready to go. Um, I was willing to work for very little money. And so three days after I got my diploma, I was on the plane to Albania. So, I I mean, what were your first experiences like in, in Albania? I mean, this was a country that for decades had been just totally shut off from the rest of Europe. Right, I mean, it was almost like a like a North Korea uh, yeah. of 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 Europe, but all of a yep. sudden, it's like welcoming Americans by the plane loads, like yourself, who are there to help their um, ethnic cohorts in in Kosovo. Um, so, what were I guess like what was your experience there? Like, like and what what did you set off doing? It was wild. It was a very unusual place, and uh, you know, I think it's come much more into the European and Balkan mainstream now, but, but then 1999, it hit only, I think they were barely a decade removed from, from communism. And as you say, being sort of the North Korea of Europe, a very closed off society. I we're talking to, uh, you know, people, young people about my age when I was there. So people in their early twenties who had grown up most of their lives thinking, that they were in the best and richest country in the world and only realizing after the country opened up that it was pretty much the opposite of that. And so that was a, a really jarring experience 
for that population and um, dramatically undermined their faith in in government, their faith in their national institutions, um, their you know their uh, just their confidence in 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 everything and. So that ha- so that you know that was the first big thing that that shook Albania, and then the second big thing was uh, in the mid '90s, several years after throwing off communism and instituting, kind of beginning to move towards democracy, they had a massive economic collapse brought on by the fact that their prime minister at the time was uh, and his government were promoting. Uh, these economic investments that were basically a huge pyramid scheme. Yeah, right. It was, and, it was like a countrywide Ponzi scheme. I, I remember exactly, that. Yeah. exactly. And so, you know, loads of people had put what little savings they had into this get-rich-quick scheme because the government was saying, you know, do it. And then it all fell apart. And so people lost their money. There was a period of near anarchy in the country following that. That again further undermined their faith in in government and institutions. Um, they it also put a lot more guns out into the population uh, because people raided some of the the government and military uh, armories and um, and so it was a pretty it was a pretty uh, interesting place by the time I got there a few years after that and then you throw into that uh, a huge a huge number of refugees uh, in a population of a few million people and I think they were hosting. Uh, they were probably hosting on the order of half a million refugees. I don't remember the number off the top of my head. And so it was, uh, you know, it was just this country that had taken punch after punch after punch after punch. And, and now this on top of all that. And so in the town that I was in, I was in a small town called Peshkopi, which was in northeastern Albania, right where Macedonia, Kosovo, and, and Albania all come together. Small town of 10,000 people hosting 10,000 refugees. And it was... It was a really tense place. The, the local Albanian population had very generously hosted these people, uh, but were beginning to feel overwhelmed. There was a lot of resentment towards them um, because the refugees were getting all this assistance that the local population was not. This was a country that was extraordinarily poor at that time, and particularly the area where I was where I was working. It was this very small. You know, it's very small, uh, a provincial backwater of a town where they had very little money. And then here come all these refugees, and suddenly a bunch of international agencies show up and give a lot of assistance to these Kosovo refugees who economically were coming from a far higher baseline than your average Albanian. Kosovo was a, a, a considerably wealthier uh, place traditionally than Albania had been. And so, um, you know, from from... Your, your average local Albanian's point of view, here come these Kosovars who were wealthy, and the internationals come in, help them, give them all sorts of stuff, and we get bupkis. And so there was a, a there was kind of simmering tension and resentment the whole time I was there be, because of this. And at one point, uh, one of the things that my organization was doing was renovating one of the schools in town to serve as a a collective center for the to to host refugee families until the the war was done and they could go back. And so, you know, we thought we were doing something quite good in that we were rent, taking a pretty rundown school, renovating it, leaving it in much better shape, and so that you know, it was both helping the refugees in the near term, and then would be something that would go back to the community for their own use in the longer term. And when the war ended and the refugees began going home and they vacated the, the collective center, a, a mob of uh, local townspeople then ransacked, went, went through the newly renovated school and ransacked it and uh, just busted up everything. And um, at the time, I found that just totally inexplicable and impossible to understand. Um, but I didn't have a good sense. I didn't really understand at the time being about a month into my aid worker career, uh, the degree to which uh, refugee populations can engender a lot of uh, resentment amongst uh, a host population. And this was a manifestation of that. And, and I have to imagine that's a lesson that you've drawn on throughout your career. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I've, I've tried to be sensitive to. And, and you know, one of the things that 
still to this day strikes me as a great structural weakness in the humanitarian system is that we have a very hard time seeing people kind of engaging with people based on need rather than engaging with people based on category. You know, the whole system is set up to traditionally either deliver to a specific category of people. So kids, refugees, women, that's three UN agencies right there, or to deliver a category of stuff, you know, food, uh, healthcare, agriculture, that's three other UN agencies. And, um, doesn't easily engage with people based on their actual baseline level of need. And when you engage with people based on their category or kind of a typology of stuff, you're not seeing them as a whole person within the context that they're in, or at least structurally, the system does not incentivize that. And it leads to these sort of disconnects. I guess like from, from a UN perspective, I have to imagine that that they don't do that because it's like so difficult to like acknowledge that people are, are complex with complex motivation, complex needs, um, you know, different priorities that it would just like mean like a whole sort of reorient reorientation around the, how they've historically yes, done would. their work to, to do this kind of thing. Bingo. Yeah. But it's pretty indefensible, frankly. Uh, so last week when I was in Nigeria, I, uh, walked through an IDP camp and gosh, it was a wonderful experience being outside the USG security bubble and being able to just go to an IDP camp and walk. So nice. Um, they, they wouldn't let senior officials like you do that back in oh, back months it, ago you, while you were a U.S. government you, official. You'd have like, you'd have, you know, armed guards around and it just, it just made it very awkward. So it was nice to be able to do that as just a, you know, normal nobody. Uh, well, not a, Told nobody like a, a white guy in the middle of a Nigerian refugee camp, but still, um, you know, like an a average person. Um, so it was it was great. And one of the things that struck me because I was doing this mission for WHO, and so we're looking at uh, WHO emergency response and and healthcare in this IDP camp. So the healthcare in this IDP camp. Uh, for basic primary health care, there were several mobile clinics run by NGOs, not just one, but as I took it, several. Um, if you were a, a woman or a child, you could also get some a certain set of maternal and child health primary services from a UNICEF clinic that was uh, uh, set up. And if you needed GBV services, that was a separate and physically distinct clinic run by UNFPA. And that's gender-based violence is what you're saying. Yes, gender-based violence. And if you needed nutrition services, that was yet another clinic run by yet another organization. It's And it's it's bonkers, right? If you're an IDP living in that camp, you don't want to have to think, okay, so let's see, I'm a woman, and this is something that UNICEF will define as a maternal child health ailment. So I will go to that clinic for this, but I also have, um, my husband has a respiratory infection, so he's going to go to the NGO mobile clinic. And my neighbor, um, she's just been, she's just faced sexual abuse. So she'll go to the UNFPA clinic and my kid who needs nutrition support is going to go to this. I mean, it's crazy, right? It's crazy. And it, and you know, it is not set up that way because it is the most efficient way to provide support to that population. And it's not set up that way because this is how, uh, I, you know, that, that population can best be served. It's set up that way because it reflects the, the fragmentation amongst the humanitarian agencies. And what I find really indefensible and found really indefensible when I was in government, um, although also very hard to fix is the way in which the humanitarian system reflects the fragmentation that exists at the top levels of the system in terms of the mandates and roles of the agencies. It just reflects that all the way down the line, right the way down to how services are provided on the ground in an IDP camp. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, another great example of that in Lebanon, there was a study that I think ODI did a couple of years ago on That's cash the programming. British think tank, Overseas Development Institute. Yeah, I got to stop using all these acronyms. No, no, so. no. I'm, I'm. This is, this is my job. You know, this, I, you, I translate a, acronyms for the audience. You've got a savvy audience. I bet they know most of these. Um, so, so there was a great, really landmark study on 
humanitarian cash programming that found that in Lebanon there were something like 30 different uh, cash assistance humanitarian cash assistance platforms being run by about 14 different uh, NGOs and UN organizations. And so if you were a hungry refugee uh, child, you might qualify for three different cash platforms, <clears throat> for three different cash programs based on those three different criteria and have to walk around with three different cards. And, um, and it, you know, it's crazy. It, we shouldn't put it on, a refugee or IDP or other affected population mm -hmm. to figure out how to navigate our own dysfunction as the humanitarian <laughs> sector. We should do a lot better than that. And for the most part, we don't. That, that's, a, that's a good way to put it. So, so uh, how long did you spend in Albania in, in the region uh, back in the 90s? So I was in Albania for the first three or so months, and then the war ended, and the refugees went home. And so I then... yeah. <clears throat> Now you warned me that you're battling some some allergies, so it's, yes, it's, okay. uh, it's it's spring in DC. <laughs> um, so so did you did you go back uh, did you go back uh, home after that, realizing this is something you wanted to keep doing? No, so I sorry I, I <clears throat> interrupted myself with the coughing, but so I spent about three months in Albania uh, during and immediately following the refugee crisis, and then as the refugees all returned home to Kosovo, I moved to Pristina. And I took over the organization there, set it up in Kosovo, and then ran its Kosovo operations for the next two years. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, what was your next move uh, out of the region? So I, I then left the Balkans. I went, came back to Washington. I went to grad school at Georgetown, did a master's, and while working there, got a summer internship at the Refugee Bureau in the State Department. So I spent a summer there, and then they offered me a job coming out of that. So I worked there half time during my second year of grad school. And um, uh, so was there for about a year and then went, moved to Africa to be a country director for the American Refugee Committee in Guinea. Oh, what, were, what was the refugee situation in, in Guinea at the time? So I got there in mid-2003. So it was about a year or two after the war had ended in Sierra Leone. And it was, I got there just as the war was wrapping up in, in Liberia. So there were hundreds of thousands of Sierra Leonean and Liberian refugees and a few uh, Ivorian refugees as well living in, uh, uh, living in southeastern Guinea, in interestingly enough, in the exact area where Ebola yeah, emerged Yeah, I was, I was about later. to say that. that that's, that's, that's the region <clears throat> right there. Right there, yep, yep. And so you know, during the Ebola outbreak, all of these towns in that part of Guinea – were sort of my old stomping grounds. It was it was all places where we'd had programs and field offices. But so uh, ARC was running healthcare, gender-based violence, and uh, income generation slash microfinance programs in in virtually all of the refugee camps in Guinea. Uh, and and uh, I guess were the conditions. I mean, this is a, a much poorer region by orders of magnitude. Than uh, you know, than than former <clears throat> Yugoslavia than Kosovo. Yes, I mean, were, did the conditions just re reflect that in, in pretty dramatic ways? Oh yeah, there's no comparison. I mean, the uh, yeah, I mean, just no no comparison. the The population of Kosovo had been accustomed to a nearly first world lifestyle and um the the population that was living in this part of guinea and the refugee population that had fled from uh sierra leone and liberia you know they they were they were living uh, even back when they were still in their countries living under dramatically poor circumstances so it, it was a very different uh, a very different kind of aid and it, it really brought into sharp relief for me how much uh, the uh, media prominence and political relevance of a humanitarian crisis drives resources. Mm -hmm. So Kosovo, which is this population of about 2 million people, received just an extraordinary volume of aid, just an extraordinary volume of aid, and had virtually every humanitarian organization on the planet uh, coming in, planting a flag, and doing some programming there. Uh, for this population of two million, 
Whereas in, in Guinea, the refugee population when I got there, I think was on, it was around half a million. So about a quarter of the total population of Kosovo and was being served by a small handful of UN agencies and NGOs with a, uh, a total humanitarian budget that, uh, you know, couldn't have been much more than maybe 50 to a hundred million dollars a year. So orders of magnitude smaller than, than what Kosovo was receiving. And, you know, on a per capita basis, just dramatically, dramatically less. Yeah. I mean, that's like a constant frustration I hear from people, um, in the humanitarian community. It's just how the, the, the degree to which like the, the political or strategic relevance of the the conflict of the crisis particularly to the major donors like the united states is what drives resources not the actual like amount of need on the ground i had a friend who was working for a big organization and, and like the georgia crisis came up and they were just like mm -hmm. flooding flood and this was like like yeah. in uh, 2008 right um yeah. when there was a conflict in georgia and, and and the united states just flooded georgia with all yeah. this funds and 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 you know she was just like wrapping her knuckles and, and, and just like shrugging her shoulders like, oh my God, like if we need, like we can get like a quarter amount of this money for Liberia, we'd, we'd be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a, you know, that's a, a, a constantly difficult tension to manage. And so when I was the OFTA director, it was something I tried to be very attuned to. Um, you know, there is never enough money to go around period. And it's, in some ways more art than science as to how you, how you balance that. Um, but I think we did a, I think we did a decent job of allocating large scale resources to numerous emergencies, whether or not they were necessarily hugely in the public eye. And so we were putting out of Ofta's budget about $300 million a year into Syria, uh, which obviously has a, had a pretty high standard of living prior to the prior to the conflict and was very, very much in the, the political and media spotlight. But at the same time, we were putting over a hundred million dollars a year into into South Sudan, which was uh, numerically a very severe but numerically much smaller crisis. And um, we were putting uh, resources, we ended up putting uh, this year resources on a similar scale into Nigeria, into Yemen, you know, crises that are, are much less in the in the public eye. So, uh, you know, the 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 teams there they do make an effort to allocate resources based on need. But there is always the the prospect that when you have a a major uh, emergency of political relevance, you're going to get more money. Uh, it, it's easier to argue for money for that than it is for money for um, Yemen or the Central African Republic or something like that. Um, we're, we're almost out of time, but I'd love to, to chat about a bit about your time at OFDA if you have a few more minutes. Yeah, certainly. Um, so, so I, I think I mentioned earlier, I, you came on my radar in your time working at, at Mercy Corner. I know you worked there for, for a long time. Um, but can you talk a little bit about um, OFDA? Like, how did you get, how did you learn that you were to be nominated for? This position at, at OFDA, which I should say is like the, the the lead UN emergency, the lead US emergency relief agency. Well, so I had worked quite a bit with the the previous OFDA director during my time at Mercy Corps. Um, I'd engaged him quite a bit, and uh, so when he was planning to leave, he reached out to me and suggested I throw my hat in the ring, and so I did. And my former boss from you know, from Mercy Corps, Nancy Lindborg was now running the the bureau in which Ofta sits, and oh, so yes. um, so that uh, that helped. Um, but you know what you really realize with these senior political jobs is it's kind of a stars aligning uh, moment whether you get that get it or or not because mm -hmm. you need to have both the the qualifications but also. Um, the the connections and the bona fides uh, to to uh, to kind of navigate through the the politics of the process. Is it is it a Senate confirmed position? No, it's not. Okay. It's not. Thank, thankfully, because so you had that really going in your favor. Yeah. yeah, that 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 expedited things a bit. So you arrived at OFDA in 2012. Is that right? I'm not uh, trying 20, to remember. September 2013. 2013. What were your like the the biggest kind of crises that you confronted upon uh, arrival? Like what what were some of the early emergencies? 
So the first big one that I managed was the Philippine super typhoon mm-hmm. in Haiyan, uh, I think it was right. Haiyan in early November 2013. I'd been on the job six weeks at that point. And interestingly, Mark Bartolini, my predecessor, had been on the job about six weeks when the Japanese uh, earthquake and tsunami hit. Um, so I, I wrote in my exit memo to my whoever my successor will be um, that uh, – they should assume they've got a six-week window in which they need to get themselves ready. That's funny. So, um, so what I recall about about the the, the timing of that uh, super typhoon Haiyan uh, from talking to UN officials at the time is that it was something like the the they had never had that many L three emergencies ongoing at the same time, and then the typhoon hits, and that just compounds and stretches everything very thinly. Yeah, in retrospect, it's kind of adorable because we thought it was a lot at that time and then you know yeah. the next three years hit us um and told and showed us what a lot really looks like mm-hmm. uh, but yeah it, it was it was a strain on the system at the time and this was a perpetual theme i think of my time at ofta was that the system was stretched and kept being asked to do more um with a uh, a, a the the need was outpacing mm-hmm. the resource and capacity growth of the humanitarian system Yet so, that response was known to be actually a very effective response for, for a number of reasons. It was quite effective. I mean, look, natural disasters are the easiest. Um, they, you, you don't have the sort of political baggage that you have with a conflict. The governments generally are pretty engaged and you know, reasonably supportive and facilitating um, the international engagement. <clears throat> the Philippines is a, a capable middle-income country with a lot of experience in disaster management. So there was a lot. We had a lot going in our favor on on that response. But it was a logistically really challenging one. It was the 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 storm surge from that storm had really wiped out most of uh, the city of Tacloban, which was a huge city, half a million people. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. really really big city, and had. Uh, uh, wrecked the port, wrecked the airport. So it was very, the, the logistics of how to get an at scale aid operation stood up when you have very limited port access and very limited air access are, are pretty challenging, as you can imagine. And I remember four or five days in standing in my office, and we'd all just been working on this in a frenzy for, for days trying to get this all stood up. And there I was, had BBC on, and there was a BBC reporter walking down the line of people in Tacloban saying, have you gotten food yet? Have you gotten food yet? Have you gotten food yet? And I just mm-hmm. thought, screw you, guy. Like, it's way easier to get a, a TV camera in there than a food pipeline. Um, but we did get the food pipeline. We got the water. You know, we worked with UNICEF to get the water turned back on. Uh, we brought in the military. The military helped get the, 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 the ports workable again, cleared the airport, got the airport up and running. And once some of those initial uh, logistical blockages were resolved, then the aid really flowed in and things got a lot better. And of course, you know, the local population, uh, once they uh, got their bearings after a couple of days, did most of the heavy lifting. And by the time I got there, I think a week or a week and a half after the event um, to review how the DART was doing, all the roads were clear, uh, buildings were being climbed out. And that was all the, you know, that was all the population itself. That wasn't the international community. And, and I think that's a really key point in any response is when the local populate, whenever the local population can, they're going to be the first responders. They're going to be the ones on the front lines doing the heavy lifting. And, and we need to always be cognizant that we are there supplementing that rather than actually running the show. Um, so earlier you referenced the uh, Ebola outbreak and, and started in Guinea. I have to imagine that that um, experience was, was, you know, fairly, uh, was, was a fairly big part of your experience as, as, uh, off the director was, was the Ebola outbreak. Yeah, that was one of the, def- certainly one of the defining responses of my tenure. What was the earliest, um, sign that you saw that this uh, Ebola outbreak was going to be, you know, a pandemic was, was going to be just like a, a much bigger, much worse than anything you'd ever seen before. Um, so it would have been over the summer, and and um, you know we're we're fortunate it didn't reach pandemic proportions. Certainly reached right. epidemic I should proportions. say that that's that's like a, 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 a had it gone global, right. we'd, all, we'd, right. we'd still be battling it today. Yeah. Um, but it was it was really in a sort of June July period. So just to give a bit of a, a quick background on the chronology of how it played out, 
So it it was in it, the the first case, the index case of the outbreak, uh, was in Guinea in December of 2013, and it wasn't actually discovered until about three months later. And and that the, the re, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that obviously the healthcare system in Guinea is is fairly weak, and um, so they didn't have great surveillance. They didn't have uh, great uh, capabilities for diagnosing novel diseases, but also uh, the symptoms of Ebola bear a lot of similarity to a lot of other African diseases. So, like um, Lassa fever, that sort of thing. Well, but even like malaria or or uh, gastrointestinal diseases. You know, the people know people know they kind of know of Ebola as this. Or they think of Ebola as this disease that makes you bleed from all your orifices, it, and it does in some cases, but. You know, the, especially early on, the major symptoms of it are diarrhea, vomiting, and fever. The major symptoms of, um, uh, of say, giardia, which I had many times living in Guinea, are uh, vomiting, diarrhea, fever, and uh, malaria, uh, fever. And, um, and so you've got a lot of you – had, it had a, a symptom profile that was just close enough to a lot of other diseases that people often get around there that it was able to um, go undetected for several months. And, and then once it was detected, the sort of normal, the normal international response architecture for an Ebola outbreak swung into action. And what that looked like was MSF would go and run uh, treatment units, WHO and CDC would send in technical support to the Ministry of Health. And generally, for a small localized outbreak, like we were used to seeing in, in the, the Congo or Uganda, that would be enough. And so that was what swung into action in March after the, the disease was first detected. And, and I, you know, at the time, having lived there and know, having worked on health programming in that area of Guinea, um, I was certainly nervous that just more at a, just a, a personal level from having lived in the country that this was going to be a challenge in that in that context but uh every prior ebola outbreak had been had been contained at a small scale and for the most part the consensus of the public health community was that this because this was such a fatal uh terrible disease that it would generally burn itself out before it could ever reach a really large scale and that assumption looked pretty sound through about may so april uh, march april there was this surge in of the sort of the usual suspects for for Ebola control, and case cart case counts started going down, and it actually got to a point in May where uh, there had not been a detected case in in several weeks. Um, the 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 defined end of an Ebola outbreak is when you've gone through two incubation cycles of 21 days without detecting any new cases. So they came very, very close to reaching that 42-day mark, and it really looked like this thing was over. Um, and so CDC started pulling up stakes, WHO started pulling up stakes, and um, MSF was out there, and credit to them, MSF was out there uh, ringing the alarm bell saying, you know, th th this is not over. And... Um, um, but the you know the consensus of the of the public health community was that this thing this thing was being contained and so and the, how the did it diminishing. rebound so <clears throat> so abruptly? Well, so um, it it's so this that, that particular part of Guinea it has huge ties to adjoining areas of Sierra Leone and Liberia. There's a lot of commerce and trade. There's a lot of um, you know the same ethnic groups. Uh, uh, live on either sides of those borders, and so there's just a huge amount of back and forth movement for um, for for family reasons, for social reasons, for economic reasons, uh, and <clears throat> and so when um, uh, so people uh, so people who were infected um, would travel for funerals, say. And funeral, funeral, traditional funeral rites in in that part of the world often involve uh, many members of the family and the community touching the corpse, um, and so that's about the worst thing you can do with Ebola because that is the point at which the 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 the, the body is most infectious because the the corpse need the the virus 
has evolved to know that once the host dies, it really needs to find a new host. And so the, 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 the blood and bodily fluids are the most ripe with the virus hmm. um, around the point of death. And so uh, having funeral rites where uh, a big part of the, the, the process is washing and touching the, this highly infectious corpse was about the best way to spread the disease you could possibly design. And so people would come, <clears throat> you know, because the family ties across the three countries, people would come from across the three countries to these funeral ceremonies and then become infected. Uh, it takes, uh, I forget the exact incubation period. It can take up to 21 days to manifest symptoms. And so they would then go back to their communities and then come down with the disease and then spread it again through, um, through, uh, to family members and then to the wider community through these burial ceremonies. So the disease was hiding out in those other two countries, um, as well as in Guinea. And it then, um, it then just started really blowing up and it blew up in a big way once it got to Monrovia and, and, and it had, the disease had never before been present um, at scale in an urban setting. And that was what, <laughs> that was really, what really took it out of control. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, if, if people can kind of think back to that time, there was like mass hysteria by, by the fall, <laughs> late summer, fall, um, you know, people were, were thinking that this thing really could go global. There was a, a Liberian who died in Texas and there were mm -hmm. other cases or, or around the world. <laughs> and it was really something that gripped, uh, people's both imagination, but also um, was something that was of profound alarm to the global health community. So yeah. at what point did the tide start to turn against Ebola? Like how mm. did this go from being something that was so spreading out of control to coming under control and, and then finally today mm. ha having been eliminated? Sure. Like what was, was there like a key moment that you could identify as being a turning point? Sure. Um, and I think first, it's it's worth just emphasizing that the global hysteria was never well founded. No. So the the disease did infect a few people in the states uh, as a result of that um, that Liberian patient, but Ebola is a highly it's a highly infectious, meaning a highly dangerous disease once you have it, but it's very hard to get. It is. Uh, it, you can only get it from the blood and bodily fluids of an of a symptomatic person, and generally, the more symptomatic, the more contagious. So, you know, the worse off a person looks, um, the more they're warning you not to not to touch them, um, or to you know do so only with protection. So, you know, once you know the signs, it's it's a relatively straightforward matter of avoiding it, and. Um, given the, the the caliber of health systems in in the U.S. and 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 much of the world, um, it never posed a you know a, ma a a threat of massive spread in um, in the more developed world. Uh, but in it was this in, in West Africa, it was this perfect cocktail of uh, cultural um, uh, cultural vulnerability because of some of the traditional cultural practices and very weak health systems. <clears throat> that enabled it to take root and 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 spread. And so, you know, what was the turning point? I think that is something that will be researched ad nauseum for the next several years. Um, what I can what I can say on that is really based on what I observed, and so I'll caveat it that way, saying that if it, ultimately there will be more rigorous, you know, data driven studies on this, but. So what, what we saw in Liberia, and it played out differently in each of the three countries, but what we saw in Liberia was, you know, there was this huge, there were, we made a few big pushes at once because at the outset of this, you know, we knew how you contain the disease in a small scale rural setting. We really didn't have any template for how you contain the disease at scale, especially in an urban set, in, in urban setting or, you know, a, um, a range of uh, simultaneous urban settings. So the challenge was not how do we defeat this? The challenge was, what tools can we scale quickly to defeat it? And it's very hard to scale up uh, these very sophisticated, um, rigorously managed Ebola treatment units quickly. Ultimately, that's the classic way that you contain an Ebola outbreak. And ultimately, I think that's how we extinguished it. But that's not how we brought <clears> – <throat> that's not how the transmission rates came down as dramatically as they did. And – so based on what I've observed 
and and the way it, it played out from my uh, somewhat layman's perspective during the outbreak, what seemed to really bring the transmission rates down considerably were, were two big factors. One was uh, just changes in, in behavior by the population. And that's probably the biggest single factor, that as the population of Liberia um, fully un- began to fully understand the risk and danger that this disease posed and began to understand a bit more about how it spread. There were a lot of, there were a lot of, there's a lot of reporting of communities self-organizing uh, ways to protect themselves from the disease. So, so we heard about, you know, villages in Liberia that would, uh, you know, take, take an old guy from the village, give him a thermometer and place him on the, place him on each, you know, each road coming into and out of the village. And they would just take everyone's temperature as they came in and out. If you had a fever, you got quarantined or you got put in the hut, um, and, until your fever broke. And, um, you know, that is a, that's a very simple, but very good way to protect most of the population of the village from getting Ebola. And, and so, you know, those sort of simple interventions that were a result of, uh, communities understanding the risk and understanding some some basic countermeasures, I think played a huge role. Hmm. Um, the other huge, you know, the other big uh, role or the big, <clears throat> big factor was the safe burial teams, and these were run by in Liberia. Uh, most of them were run by an NGO called Global Communities, which just did a tremendous job of rapidly scaling up burial teams throughout every county of Liberia, but also doing it in a way that was premised on community acceptance. And I think that's right, like they would deploy critical. like anthropologists with these teams, right? Just to, to figure out how to do this in like a culturally sensitive way. I, I don't know if they had anthropologists on the team, but they were certainly constructing these teams in a way that embedded them in the community hmm. and were owned by the community. So this was not, you know, dudes showing up in spacesuits wanting to take away your dead. This was members of your community uh, who, un, you know, understood your traditions, understood your practices, safely burying your dead. And, um, and I, I think global communities executed that better than just about anybody. And as a result, um, the numbers of unsafe burials declined dramatically. And so um, you know, if, you, if you assume that the really explosive spread of the disease in Liberia during that July, August into September period was driven heavily by these traditional burial ceremonies. Then by getting a handle on those and preventing the unsafe burials and the unsafe burial ceremonies, that that reduced the potential for the really explosive spread quite dramatically. So, you know, of, of the people who got the disease across the three countries, virtually all of them fell into one of three categories. Either they were people who had uh, been treating a sick person in the home, so a, a caregiver in a home setting, or treating a sick person in a clinical setting, so a caregiver in a hospital or a clinic, or had been to a burial. And so the safe burials, um, the safe burials attacked that burial vector. Some of the work that we um, that we supported with safe infection prevention and control practices in clinics. Uh, attacked that um, attacked that uh, 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 clinically based transmission vector, and then all, over time, scaling up the ETU, the Ebola treatment units, um, created the safe alternative to the need to treat people in the home, and that's what ultimately extinguished it. Um, but I, but but that scaled much more slowly, and so in Liberia, the case counts and. and began to decline and the, the numbers and the rate of new cases and the rate of new transmissions began to decline well before most of those additional Ebola treatment units came online. And that suggests that the interventions that did scale more quickly, which were around the burials and the behavior change, were probably um, the, the main factors in, in turning it around in Liberia. And, and this will be studied probably in public health circles for years, but your perspective uh, undoubtedly. is so, so important. Well, I, I just, I, I know you're suffering through allergies. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Jeremy and thank you. Thank you. Thank you 
for being a, a supporter of the show, for opting into a premium subscription, which you can do via the support the show links, either in on globaldispatchespodcast.com or in the description field of the episode in the podcast listening application you are listening to this on right now. And those links will take you to a Patreon page. Patreon is a platform in which online content creators such as myself can leverage the support of their fans on an ongoing basis, on a recurring basis. And in return, it streamlines the ability for me to reward you with uh, bonus episodes and other rewards for your support. So again, thank you so much. Please, please, please. Uh, become a recurring supporter of this show. Thank you, and we'll see you soon. Bye.